It is a pleasure for me to step in for Rod this morning. Um, I would invite you to turn with me to, we're going to be in Ezekiel 47. Um, hit the Psalms and take a right into the prophets. Ezekiel's a big long book. We'll be at the end of it in chapter 47. While you're turning there, I just want to take this moment uh, to say thank you. Uh, what a fitting way this weekend has been for me to end my first full year as the campus minister at Mercer. We moved here, my family, last January, so I haven't even been here a full 12 months. Um, but such a testimony of God's work and faithfulness on the campus of Mercer through the ministry of RUF, uh, but ultimately through the ministry of this church. Uh, without knowing it, in 1988, you planted a seed in a little girl's life in Peachtree City, grew up in a Baptist church, went off to a Baptist college in Macon, Georgia, was invited by an RUF intern to attend RUF. Um, by the end of her freshman year, she loved RUF. She was attending this church and became employed at this church uh, for the rest of her time in college. She loved RUF so much, she became an RUF intern where she moved to Oxford, Mississippi, and Ole Miss where she met a young student, me. <laughs> um, and as Providence would have it, as I got done with seminary, uh, the position at Mercer was open and God swung the doors wide open for us to return here. Uh, and what a blessing it's been and what a blessing y'all have been to me uh, and to my family, to my children, uh, to the ministry of RUF. Thank you. So many of you have given your time and your finances to the ministry of RUF. And I, I'm so indebted to you. Uh, and I hope that God blesses us continually uh, into the next 25 years. If you would, let's read here together in Ezekiel chapter 47, the first 12 verses. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me around on the outside to go to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, and it goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water becomes fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Englam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. 
Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. There's something underlying the whole of Lewis's most famous work in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that, 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 that thing that, which underlies the whole story is that Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. It's actually Aslan being on the move that brings the Pevensey children to Narnia one by one. It's the reason why the deep magic from the dawn of time slowly awakens, as Lewis puts it. All these lively characters of Narnia start coming out from hiding, and they're showing up again. And the way that this movement of Aslan is most keenly felt is in the restoration that his mystical activity brings. If you remember, the Pevensey children, when they arrive in Narnia... Narnia is a place frozen in the dead of winter. Always winter, never Christmas, one of the characters puts it. But one of the things the movies captured so well is that Aslan doesn't show up until a good ways into the book. But as the children are touring Narnia, Narnia thaws. It melts. The ice melts away. Father Christmas shows up. And before you know it, Narnia is alive with all these vibrant and beautiful colors. And, it, and then the Pevensey children end up face to face with Aslan himself. It's this beautiful picture, and it's a picture of restoration. It's a picture of the activity of Aslan bringing restoration, vibrancy, and life to everything that's in existence. I think that's the same kind of picture that we get here in Ezekiel 47. A picture of restoration, a picture about the work of God in our lives and his work in the world, what he is doing from now until he comes again. It's a vision of a river of life flowing out into the world, healing all that it touches. That's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at three things really quickly with you this morning. I want to look at the source of the river, where it's coming from. I want to look at the depth of the river as um, Ezekiel has shown how deep it gets. And I want to look at the the work of the river, what it does. The first thing here is that Ezekiel makes a, a big point to show us the source of the river, where the water is coming from. And I want to kind of just briefly give you a little context here to the whole book of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel 40 through 48 make up the last vision uh, that Ezekiel sees as a prophet and writes down and records in this book. And in this vision, uh, Ezekiel is taken on a tour of the temple. He's taken through all of it, into all of the rooms, all of the chambers, all of the courts, into the sanctuary right before the Holy of Holies. And we get to chapter 47 and he has been all around the temple okay he's been everywhere and he's taken back back into the sanctuary back before the altar back before the holy of holies and he looks up the stairs to the holy of holies and he sees water and he sees water trickling down water trickling from the altar And it goes out toward the north gate, um, and they walk around the east gate, and there again they see this water coming out of the temple, and it flows eastward. It's first a trickle, and it gets deeper and deeper, and eventually it's a full-flowing, impassable river. And what we'll see in a moment is that wherever this river flows, it brings life. But, and look at verse, if you look at verse 12, we're specifically told that, um, the trees, because they're watered from the river, they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. The reason, Ezekiel tells us, that 
the water brings life is because of where it comes from. It comes from the temple. It's directly linked to where it comes from. It comes from the temple. What's the big deal about the temple? Well, the temple is very significant in the Old Testament. And we've got to understand, it's a key to understanding really the whole Old Testament. The temple was the one place in all the earth where a person could go and meet with God. The one place, the one physical place in all the earth where a person could go and meet with God. It was where his glory dwelt. Um, God is everywhere. His glory fills the earth. But in a very special way, his glory dwelt in the temple, in the midst of his people, in the city of Jerusalem. And we, you look at the whole story of the Old Testament from Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the presence of God from the garden. The whole story of redemption is how God is going to get his people and bring them back into his presence. Back before his glory. You think about Exodus, this great action-packed book, but you get about halfway through it, and all of a sudden the whole rest of the half of the book talks about this tent that God tells his people to build for him. Why? Because he's going to come down in that tent, and he's going to live in that tent, and he's going to dwell among his people. Centuries later, David becomes king, and number one on his to-do list is to build a house for God, to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and his son Solomon ends up being the one who builds it. And the century, centuries roll on, kings come and go, wars come and go, political alliances come and go. There are good times, there's many more bad times. But one thing remains throughout the history of Israel, the temple. The temple Through it all, the temple remained symbolizing God's presence with his people. But the thing is, is that the Old Testament takes a turn and judgment does come on God's people. And they're carried away into exile. They're carried away into captivity. And before the fall of Jerusalem, we see in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel receives a vision and he sees the temple and he sees the glory of God leaving the temple. And after that vision, Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple itself is laid to ruins. So this exile, this judgment of God's people is seen specifically through the fact that God's glory has left the temple. That his presence is no longer tangibly there in the midst of his people. The exile is presented specifically with a focus on the departure of God's glory from the temple. And so as we get to the end of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel is seeing these images of restoration and the restoration that God brings, it's all in the context of God's glory returning to the temple returning to the midst of his people. In Ezekiel 34, he starts talking about restoration. He speaks about this coming divine shepherd who's going to restore the throne. And then we get that popular vision of the dry bones, right? Probably the most famous story from Ezekiel uh, where these dry bones are, are come alive and become people as life is breathed into them. And we see this final victory of God over all his enemies. But all these grand visions, they're all incomplete without God's glory in the temple. The grand restorative act is the glory of God returning to the temple. It's that important. Centuries later, John chapter 2, John tells us about Jesus going into the temple 
And he starts throwing things around. We're actually told he makes a whip of cords and drives people out. And he says, how dare you do these things in my father's house? And a few days later, the leaders come to him and they say, why have you done these things? And do you remember what he says? He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. And John tells us that he was specifically talking about his body. And after the resurrection, the disciples remembered what Jesus has said. And because they remembered what Jesus has said, we're told that they believed. They believed Jesus and they believed the words that he had spoken. So we have to see the Bible, all of it, in light of Jesus. Specifically in in light of how Jesus fulfills it. Because you see what Jesus was saying was that he was the temple. He was the ultimate temple. He was the ultimate grand restorative act of God's glory returning to the midst of his people. And John makes sure to point that out. You remember the famous verse in John chapter 1, verse 18, that the word became flesh and literally tabernacled amongst us, pitched his tent amongst us. And John goes on to say, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Glory come down from heaven once again to be in the midst of his people. Okay, so connect the dots with me here. The temple was where you could go to meet God. For us, Jesus is where we meet God. So, the river is coming from the temple. For us, the river comes from Jesus. Well, what is the river? The river is this, has this miraculous power. It makes things come alive. So you could say it's a river of living water. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 7, we're told Jesus stood up at the Feast of Booths and said this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever comes to him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So from the beginning of the Bible, as can be seen in Genesis 2, this river of life in Genesis 2 that flows out from the Garden of Eden into the world, and then at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, we once again see a river of life flowing down the middle of the new city, uh, New Jerusalem. We see that there's this common theme in the Bible that a river of God, a river from God, always signifies the grace and blessing that flows to us from him and for us on this side of the cross flows specifically to us from christ so ezekiel's vision he sees a water from the temple and it's very significant but for us we know where that river ultimately comes from it comes from jesus and that helps us understand why this is a river of life second thing i want to move on and look at this the depth the depth of the river you see Ezekiel's guide, he takes him out and they go along the river. They go every a thousand cubits, there's about five football fields. Every five football fields, uh, the man stops and measures it. And we're first, it's a trickle, then it's ankle deep, then it's waist deep. And finally, it's a full-fledged raging river. Now, don't have like the Oak Mogi in your mind. Think about like the Mississippi River or the Rio Grande. This is a full, raging, impassable river. So if... 
If this river is, if it symbolizes the blessings that flow to us from God through Christ, what are we envisioning here? What is this that we're envisioning here? Here it is. It's Jesus's relentless pursuit of his people. That's it. Jesus's relentless pursuit of his people to bless them, to forgive them, to make them right, to restore them, to make them come alive. That's what we're seeing here. This living water keeps growing and growing in flow and in force, and we see that nothing can stop it, telling us that Jesus will relentlessly pursue and restore his people because that's precisely what he came for, and he will not stop until he does it. You think about this. Think about the ocean. You know, we go go to the ocean because we find it soothing and peaceful, right? Um, And the ocean, this vast, immense body of water. You know, at the shore, we can let our little children, we have children, three children, six and under. I don't bat an eye at letting my children play in the ocean at the shore, right? Because it's safe. But if you go out deeper, it doesn't matter if you're Michael Phelps, the greatest swimmer who's ever lived. You go out deeper into the ocean, there are undertows that will sweep you away. It doesn't matter how good you can swim. So this river is like the ocean. It's so shallow that a child could splash and play in it. But it's so deep that you will never outgrow it. You could, I, I don't know what you bring through the doors today. You could be one who has been hopelessly burdened maybe hopelessly burdened by your own sin, your own guilt, your own shame. You could be one who has been hopelessly burdened by something that happened to you. You could see yourself as hopeless, ashamed, downtrodden, all of those things. You could be such that you just don't know whether Jesus is safe enough to bring your baggage to. But the beautiful thing about this river is that it's so safe It doesn't matter how skeptical you are, how ashamed you are, what you name it. If you need to, you can just stick your toe in it. But you have to see that there's a reason why it gets deeper. Because if you have walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you have come to know that you need a river. Think about this. The older that we get, and I know that I'm finding this true for myself, the older that I get... I find that my amazement towards certain, certain things is waning. It gets smaller and smaller. For me, ultimately, it's the, the fair. I, I love the state fair. Uh, since I was five, six years old, I've gone to it every year, right? And even at the age of 30 now, every year, I have these grand images of what the fair is going to be like and how awesome it's going to be. But at the end of the night, what I'm, what's becoming glaringly obvious to me is that the fair really is just a cheap, grimy thrill, right? It's actually not so cheap. It'll hurt your wallet pretty bad. But you think about my children. You can put my children on a ride that goes in a circle no bigger than half of this stage, and they love it. It's the greatest thing that they've ever done. You see, Jesus is exactly the opposite You see, the longer you live with Jesus, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you get to know Jesus, the more and more and more your amazement grows. 
You look at how the Bible talks about giving thanksgiving and never ceasing it. It's because what the scripture writers know is the more that you get to know this God, the more you will not be able to help but give thanks. Have we understood the gospel in this way? That the more I come to know it, the more I learn it, the more I hear it, the more I cling to it, the more amazed I get. You know, we understand, we get, we get the gospel, you know, you come to Jesus and uh, you get his grace, you get his forgiveness, it's enough to cover anything you've done in the past. But so often, for so many of us, we set out on that next step and we think, okay, now I'm on my own. Jesus has given me enough to cover me, to give me a firm footing, but now I've got to prove myself worthy or whatever. And all we get from Jesus after that is kind of this big brother who knows when we're sleeping and knows when we're awake. That's not the gospel. Because that's not freedom. That's more bondage. Thing is, is that the more you walk with this Jesus, the more you see his holiness. The more you see what it actually takes to love him like he loves you. The more you see the heinousness of your sin because you realize that your sin is rebellion against this loving God. But at the same time, the more you see this river is deep and this river is wide and it only gets deeper and it only gets wider thing is, Jesus knows who you are. Do we forget this? Jesus knows who you are. More than that, Jesus knew who you were when he came down and took the form of a servant and became obedient even to the point of death and went to the cross on your behalf. He knew what he was getting into. That's why he knew you would need a river. And that's why he gives it. And it never runs out because he is the source. We have to ask ourselves, are we growing in our amazement of this Jesus? Are we growing in our amazement of what this gospel actually does in my life day after day? This is what Thanksgiving is about. That we grow day by day in our thankfulness for what God has done. Because actually day by day we see just how significant it was that he saved me. And we grow in our thankfulness and amazement of what he's doing now. Do we still believe that he actually is doing something now? He says that he is, and he says that he won't stop until he brings it to completion. We're growing in our amazement and our thankfulness of what he has promised he has yet to do, but will do. It's the whole key to thanksgiving. Growing in amazement of what this God does. But what does he do? I think we see what he does when we look at what this river does. We look at the work of the river. You look at verse 6. I love this kind of moment that the, the angel or the man turns to Ezekiel and says, Are you seeing this? He's trying to get his attention. He's like, just making sure. Are you seeing this? The water is doing amazing things. There's life where there wasn't. Trees, vegetation, wildlife, a teeming ecosystem as it were. And we're told that it flows into the Arabah and makes the waters flesh. That's the Dead Sea. We're familiar with that, I think. The Dead Sea. The Arabah is the Dead Sea. There's a reason why it's called the Dead Sea. The ocean, your typical sample of ocean water is about 4 to 6% minerals. The Dead Sea is about 24 to 26% minerals. There's nothing living around the Dead Sea. It's dead. 
There's no life around it. But this river that we read about not only flows into it, flows into it and freshens it and makes everything come alive. If you think about this, this is the whole point of the signs of Jesus in the gospel. His signs, his miracles, right? Um, Of which John tells us if all of them were to be written down, the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. You see, in the gospels, what we see is that everything that Jesus touches comes alive. That's why so many people gather around him and they long just to touch him and we actually have a few accounts of the gospels of people merely reaching out to touch the tail of his robe and they're healed everything jesus touches comes alive broken things are made whole sick things are made well this is the point you see this river doesn't just flow out and cleanse it doesn't just cleanse It brings life. It brings restoration. Is this perhaps why, maybe, the gospel has not amazed us the way that it should? See, Jesus, he did not just come to save you from your sins in hell. The gospel is not a get-out-of-hell ticket. We think, we know, we get it. Jesus forgives us. Isn't that sweet? No, that's not it. That is an amazing part of it, and we need to hear it every single day. But you have to hear, you have to see in this river that Jesus did not come just to take away your guilt. He came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly because He is life itself. He pours out life itself. He gives it to us, and we have it in Him. Jesus came to restore us, and there is no need that He cannot meet because the power of His blood is limitless, and it only goes deeper and deeper and deeper. In conclusion, I want you to look at verse 11. In verse 11, we're told that of all the life that this river brings... The swamps and the marshes will not be made fresh. This is not original to me. I heard someone say it, but it makes sense. What makes swamps and marshes swampy and marshy? It's that water flows into them, but it doesn't flow out. You see, the living water of Jesus only works as it flows through you through you. How in the world can that happen? You know, something amazing happens after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. We read that God's glory comes down one more time. But this time, it comes down and it rests on His people. The temple is back because now we are the temples of God as God's glory now dwells within us. Because God has taken our hearts for himself and taken taken them up as his dwelling place. When Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that we are temples, we usually take that to mean how we're supposed to take care of our bodies. There's definitely applications there. But more than that, I think what Paul is getting at is that wherever you go, people are to meet this God. 
The temple was the meeting place of God. If we are God's temples, we are now the meeting place of God for the world. Each and every one of you. The river of life flows out of us. The same one that restores us, it flows from us and heals the world around us. That's the picture that we get from this river of life. I don't watch the show The Biggest Loser regularly, but I always love to catch the finales. It's one of these shows where people get together for eight weeks and lose hundreds of pounds um, because they're overweight. It's an amazing show. I always love to catch the finales because, one, you see the before and after pictures, but they usually bring back finalists from other shows from seasons past to see what they're doing now. And what amazes me about these finales is whenever they go back to a contestant that was successful in losing all the weight, it never fails what they are doing. Almost every single one of them has devoted their lives to making possible for other people to do what they did. In other words, they've all devoted their lives to sharing this life-transforming experience that they had in, the, in being on the show and losing all that, wet, all that weight. And so I think to myself, if men and women feel a burden for that just through a TV show that taught them how to eat right and exercise, how much more are we compelled to share the gospel that we've been given, the life that we've been given? Because we've been given life abundant. And you know, here's the thing. You may only be able to offer a trickle you think about it, RUF, we had a great time yesterday. 25 years, that's a blip on the radar. Chip gave us the history of campus ministry over the last 60, 70 years. RUF is but a small blip on that timeline. It's only a trickle. But if, if, if yesterday was a testament to anything... It was that that trickle has gone out and it has done nothing but get deeper and deeper and wider and wider in countless lives, in countless churches, in countless ministries, in countless families and marriages. The thing is, is that this river of life will not stop until it springs again eternally in glory. That's what we get in Revelation chapter 22. We have to ask ourselves, have we heard this good news of the river of life? Have we bathed in this river? Have we jumped in? Are we floating? Are we letting it do its work in our lives and in the lives of those around us? It is the river of life. And it flows to us through Christ our Lord, from whom, as we will sing in a minute... All blessings flow. May we give thanks to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We have thankful hearts for who you are, for what you have done, for what you are doing, even when we don't know, for what you have promised you will do. Father, we know that we need a river. We pray that you would pour it out upon this place even now, even today. That you would give us the river of life. That you would give it to us abundantly. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.